0: Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. It is another episode of What A Week, and I'm joined, as always, by Andrew and Andrew, how are you? I'm very well,
1: Zach. How are you?
0: Also doing very well. Uh, as you know, I was in the office today, in our Chicago office, and had to, had to sprint home on a train. walk. It was more of a brisk walk. Brisk walk to the train so I wouldn't miss it, and then brisk walk from the train station home so I could make it in time for us to do the recording, but I made it. We're here in one piece and ready to go.
1: That's just the kind of guy you are, man. You just... <laughs> go the extra mile.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, it was just, an, as you know, it was an unexpected, uh, unexpected visit today, complicated by an unexpected trip next week. And so, you know, the domino effect, one thing led to another, ended up having to go to the office today and knock out some stuff, got it done, and here we are. So, but I'm glad to be with you. How are you? How are things uh, where you are? Things are very well. I'm preparing to go on
1: a trip to London, as I was just telling you before we started recording, which is a big yes. deal for me. I haven't been back to England since 2004. uh, So a long time ago, but uh, that place, I spent three years there and that place very much formed me in all kinds of different ways. So I'm really eager to go back and um, it's a work trip. I'm going to be participating in a conference and doing some other stuff. And um i am i'm getting pretty excited although i'm a little nervous about leaving my family for a week i don't know you uh, have you had to leave your family for that length of time
0: well yes when i was in the military i did a four month deployment and i do not recommend that that was definitely not fun and um yeah highly stressful certainly longer than a week but really ever since then and even before then whenever i would leave for any length of time that was even more than like one night it is definitely hard and i it, it's a little bit stressful. So I understand the stress. I mean, but being transatlantic is is another thing entirely. So, you know, a work trip, we fly from Dallas to Chicago, for example, is not as significant as Dallas to London. So yeah, my right. prayers with your family for sure.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Now you, you studied in Oxford, obviously, uh, graduate school, uh, when you were in Oxford, did you spend much time in London? Is that a city that you're very familiar with from your time there?
1: Well, I, I spent a little bit of time in London, but i lived in london my third year in in england actually so i did my my two years at oxford got my master's degree was all set to keep going i was all kind of i had i had been approved for research status and moving on to the d and then i just decided to drop out i mean my supervisor just kind of never heard from me again it was it was a weird situation and it had to do with my own sense of vocation i had an opportunity to go and work in this church in london so I ended up just kind of doing it almost spur of the moment. It's kind of a weird thing, yeah. but um, yeah, I spent a whole year in London and um, I love it very much. I look forward to seeing what's changed and what stayed the same.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly, I haven't traveled as widely as I, as I, you know, have wanted to, but I've traveled fairly widely around the world and London is my favorite city that I've ever been to. I just think it's phenomenal it's fantastic it's humongous there's so much to do there the public transportation is amazing it's relatively clean uh the culture scene is incredible the history there obviously uh you know it's rivaled by some of the great uh the great cities in the world but it's it's it you know no american city can hold a candle to the history of london for example so yeah uh it's just a really cool place i absolutely love it and uh, i'm a bit jealous of your trip but hope it's a really fun time i hope so too look forward to getting the report when you get back
1: yeah for sure
0: okay well let's start with uh let's start with some listener feedback this week andrew and uh, this is going to be new feedback to me i have not heard what this listener wrote to you about but you got some feedback from a listener Mm -hmm. uh and i think it's about one of our misinformation segments from last week but like i said i'm going to be mostly surprised so let's uh let's do that
1: yeah this was exciting, I thought. It it shows that we have people out there listening to us. And uh, this was a friend of mine named Justin. Hi Justin, if you're listening. Hey Justin. He's a lo- he's a longtime listener of the Creedle podcast. He's oh. not, not only my he wasn't listening just for me. In fact, you know, he's been a fan of, of your broadcasts for a long time, Zach. And um, but he has continued listening in our weekly uh, our weekly podcast. And Great. Glad uh, to hear I happened to have arranged to have lunch with him the day after we, uh, we um, published last week's podcast, and he said, hey, I want to talk to you about this AI um, rapper thing. So to catch our listeners up, if they didn't participate in last week's show, you shared an article called Capital Records Cuts Ties with AI-Generated Rapper, FN Mecca, Over Racist Stereotypes. That was one of your uh, misinformation articles. And it turns out that it was true the you know, uh, you were trying to stump me on that one, but it's true, there's an AI rapper. Well, we in our discussion, Zach, we got into this a little bit and Bobby Mixa was with, with us last week, but we got into this a little bit that, you know, obviously, the the big story, the lead, right, is the kind of the racist part of it, in a way, right? Like, you, you know, there was kind of this like, um, I, I read the article again, and it talked about how this AI generated, you know, this AI generated rap included um, it said it perpetuated some black stereotypes and it even used the N-word, right? And this is like AI generated, and so people, rightly so, got kind of upset about this. But this friend of mine brought to my attention something we touched on a little bit when we were discussing the article, but he really, he really wanted to go further with it, and I, I really loved what he had to say. Namely, that there's just this much bigger problem, right? The whole idea of a computer creating art, Yes. And we, again, we touched on this a little bit, but he, you know, he had some really good points that he made to me in our conversation and that he shared with me in a text after that. Just kind of saying we really need to be heralds of the kind of the good news of art in the sense of art needs an artist, that, Mm. you know, that it is a part of our nature as creatures of a creator that we desire to create. That's what art is all about, right? That there's a, there's a will behind it. Like even if it just looks like splattered paint on a canvas or something like that, it is, it is like attempting to express something that is unique to the human condition. Um, so, you know, he talked about, uh, this friend of mine talked about how art captures reality. In some respects, that's what we're trying to do. And so if it's artificial intelligence, if it is sort of by nature, not real, then it is incapable of expressing a participation in an appreciation of a uh, critique of whatever it may be of reality right mm-hmm. uh, so i thought all of that really hit the mark but then he made one point at the end and i'm just going to read this this part of of the text that he sent to me to express um i think something pretty profound. these are his words
0: that you're about to read he's, he, he's yeah these are his email. words yeah. right
1: now that i'm about to read these are my okay. my friend's words um here's what he has to say kind of in conclusion i wonder what what your take will be on this zach he says ultimately this is a horrifying vision of the world put forward by tech billionaires and multinational corporations to automate everything Mm -hmm. eliminate the human element to build a world where every aspect of life is about efficiently creating a product that you will consume they don't want people with dignity and agency they want consumers human flourishing he put that in quotes human flourishing for these big tech companies looks like the fat people on the spaceship in the movie wall-e just scooting around in their space space vessels slurping down space slop and binging netflix and hulu and listening to ai generated soundcloud rap until their hearts explode i thought that was a really nice Love addition that. to Love that. Yeah. the conversation that we had
0: uh, I, I have not seen the fat people on the spaceship in WALL. I've never seen the movie Wally. One of the, oh, one of you the must. that was, that was, is it good? Is it worth it? I, I think so. Yes. Okay. I like it. I, you know, there was a time, I don't know when Wally came out, but there was a time when I watched every Pixar release every year religiously. And then I think somewhere around the Incredibles, I was like, yeah, I could probably take or leave, take it or leave it for these. And then few years ago i was like yeah this is just not the same not the same that it once was but anyway i digress have not seen wally uh but justin's depiction of uh justin's characterization of the idea of human flourishing for the sort of tech oligarch for the modern businessman uh or businesswoman is i think painfully accurate and disturbingly accurate that that is certainly they don't they don't they don't look at us as human beings they look at us as consumers that is the entire ethos of of the tech industry to maximize eyeballs in front of screens um that's why i mean even even linguistically as justin correctly points out we're users uh we're consumers Mm -hmm. um so consumers are used consumers are word that's used in you know big market studies and then users are is normally the terminology used in the internal documents of businesses that are trying to maximize essentially eyeballs in front of screens. And that's all it is. I mean, that's what matters. It's how many people can we get in front of the screens? It's especially so in the advertising industries. And that is the case for Google. Google is just built on a giant ads network. Uh, And it is also the case, people don't realize this, but for Amazon, I mean, Amazon is serving you ads all the time. Every time you see a sponsored post in in an Amazon search result, which is pretty much every time you search for anything on Amazon, that is advertising. So Amazon has a giant uh, you know, mostly in-house advertising agency already. And it serves you ads. Netflix just announced that they're going to, they're going to launch an ad supported tier. Uh, and I was just, just seeing today, there's a report that they're going to be able to charge, you know, double what, what cable TV charges for commercials on a cost per thousand impressions, uh, basis, uh, because they can, because they have the people who are, uh, as Justin describes, you know, fat and just eating, eating the uh, mass produced food and watching the mass produced uh, the mass produced stuff. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that uh, summary. And I think he's right. We did touch on that. You're right. This sort of this idea of the, the problem of uh, digital, digitally created art. And I think I mentioned that I've listened to a couple of AI songs, you know, you click one of these like Buzzfeedy type articles, it's like, you won't believe an AI made this song. And it's just like, it just sounds horrible. Uh, and I, my response was basically, yes, I 100% believe that an AI wrote that song because an AI doesn't have the consciousness to recognize what is beautiful. Uh, so I had literally never heard of this FN Mecca quote character uh, avatar is what it really is. Uh, until this article, I just thought the entire article was ridiculous, but to Justin's point, it does get at something more disturbing. The most disturbing thing is why independent of any racial stereotype, uh, perpetuation, which I agree is bad, uh, independent of any of that, why in the world? is Capitol Records signing an AI rapper in the first place, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's taking, taking away any of the problematic racial elements of this this digital avatar. Why in the world would you do this? This is just a right. ridiculous decision by a, a label completely from the beginning.
1: I think that's really the mystery of that story. I, I'd love to see a follow-up story. Maybe there's some digging to be done about that. Uh, maybe they thought, yeah, I mean, it's just so strange. Like, what 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 did they hope to gain? What What was that about, trying to sign... This AI rapper. I don't get it.
0: But but well, we know that what we know the answer though. You know, at a high level, the answer is money. Somehow, yeah. this translated to money for them. And right. as soon as it no longer did, you know, they cut him. It's not as if they it's not as if they didn't know about these these problematic racial stereotypes or the use of the N word as you pointed out. Uh, no no label signs an artist without listening to that artist's catalog and saying sure. like this is this something we want? It was only after the backlash started that they were like, oh, I guess we can't make the money we wanted to make. So we're going to release a big public apology statement and yada, yada, yada. And it was a, obviously a giant PR disaster for them in the end. But yeah, it's all about money. That's what it is. Yeah. <sighs> well, uh, it actually ties into our closer today. Uh we But we will we'll get that. to that yeah. after misinformation. Any other, any other comments on Justin's uh, feedback or reaction to what we had last week?
1: I think that's it. But uh, it's great to get feedback. And uh, one of the things I look forward to is uh, coming back to some of these things that we've talked about. And I think the misinformation section is an interesting area for us to kind of tease out just little bits of, of information or stories and then think about them some more and then maybe come back to them or receive some feedback and react to them for that reason.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Uh, I really, I'm enjoying the misinformation segment. And I, as I was looking at my computer, prepping for uh, preparing to give you the first one here, Andrew, I just saw a uh, a tweet from a friend of mine from about a week ago, yeah, maybe a few days ago. I guess it's a few days ago. Uh, Dan Hitchens, do you know Dan? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, okay. I do know Dan. So Dan was a friend of mine in Oxford when we were studying there. He was getting his DPhil in English. He's a Samuel Johnson scholar. I don't know if you know Samuel yes. Johnson or have read much of mm-hmm. him. I've not read much of him, but I know about him a bit through Dan. Uh, Dan's just a great guy, Catholic convert. And uh, I, agree. I, I, I love Dan, mm-hmm. but so, uh, so uh, this is not going to be misinformation because I'm telling you exactly what it is right now, but uh, honorable mention, we'll call it that. This is an honorable mention for the misinformation section. Uh, the guardian uh, published an article by a guy named Peter young. And Peter young wrote that this, uh, this woman, I'm guessing this is a uh, Vietnamese name, Win Thi Phuong Thao, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but Peter Young writes that this woman will be the first minority woman to have her name on an Oxford college. Um, so there, there will be a new Oxford college apparently named after this woman. Uh, A reader wrote into the Guardian and said, but two colleges founded in the 14th century were named after a Jewish peasant woman living in Rome, Roman occupied Palestine 2000 years ago. They are the House of the Blessed Mary, the Virgin in Oxford, commonly called Oriel College of the foundation of Edward II, a famous memory, sometimes King of England and St. Mary's College of Winchester in Oxford, known as New College to avoid any confusion with Oriel. (laughs) Among later foundations, St. Anne's College is named after Mary's mother. And Saint Catherine would probably also fit the criteria. I think Since
1: Mary <laughs> Maudlin would as well. My college, yeah. Maudlin. Yeah,
0: that's a very, very good point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to the Guardian's credit, they published this letter, but I thought that was wow. just a fantastic, uh, fantastic um, piece of. The, the, what, how I would have prompted it to you is something like, uh, you know, true or false? The uh, Oxford has announced that it will name its first uh, college after a uh, a minority woman, and that that would obviously be, be false. That's false. As uh, Stephen Shaw has pointed out. Okay. But I, I actually don't know who the person, the, the Vietnamese woman is, who I, whose name I read. I'll have to do a little bit of digging on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. You ready for your misinformation segment here, Andrew? I am ready. Let's do it. We have, I don't think we mentioned this to the listeners. We've streamlined this. Rather than me giving Andrew three and Andrew giving me three, we're just going to rotate every week. I'm going to give Andrew three today. Next week, Andrew will give me three. So let me figure out the order that I want to do these, Andrew. Okay. I think I've got it. Misinformation, item one. In a recent profile in the online magazine, The Cut, about Meghan Markle, uh, the writer was describing a story or telling a story from Meghan in which, quote, Meghan recalled a moment, from the 2019 London premiere of the live action version of the Lion King quote from Megan if this is true I just had Archie it was such a cruel chapter I was scared to go out end quote and then the writer describes a cast member from South Africa pulled Megan aside quote he looked at me and he's just like light he said I just need you to know when you married into this family we rejoiced in the streets the same we did when Mandela was freed from prison Okay. So there's item one. Meghan Markle tells a story to her profiler of how someone pulled her aside and said, when you married into the British royal family, we celebrated like Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. Okay. Okay. That's item one. Item two. In California, which is undergoing a massive heat wave right now as we speak, uh, prayers up for our California friends. uh, One response from the state has been that They have encouraged people to not run their large appliances for too long and to not charge their electric vehicles. Uh, This action coming only days after announcing that in 2035, gas vehicles will be no longer able to be sold at all in the state of California. That's item two. Okay. Item three. Bank of America announces... A zero down payment, zero closing cost, special mortgage program for black and Hispanic first time homebuyers. Residents in select Charlotte, Dallas, Detroit, Los Angeles, and Miami neighborhoods will be the first to be offered the program, which is limited to, as I said, first time black and Hispanic homebuyers. That is item three of misinformation. That one from NBC News. Okay. What do you think is the misinformation here, Andrew?
1: All right. Well... I believe that the first one is true and okay. I would like well, to discuss that further. Would yes. you like would you like to well I I heard the story so I oh, okay. unless so you, you have, a, you have unless you have like um slipped something in there which you may have done um to deceive me. I believe I believe that that is true and um that is just an astonishing thing. I mean okay, if somebody says something like that just in kind of a you know, I don't know, a moment of enthusiasm or something. Okay. You, you know, if you're Meghan Markle, you just sort of take, take it and move on. But to kind of broadcast that, um, is, is pretty wild, I have to yeah. say. So yeah, uh, yeah I Agreed. believe that one's true. I don't know if you have more insights you want to share about that.
0: Uh, it is true. Uh, that is the insight I will share right there. Um, the, the funny thing to me after that excerpt that I read, the funny thing to me is that the quote from, from Megan Markle ends and then is she still Megan Markle? Did she take last name? I think she's Markle, but. I'm, what what wrong.
1: what is what last name would she have taken anyway? Windsor, I don't know. Interesting.
0: I, yeah, I guess. I guess the Duchess of Windsor is. I once saw eye.
1: actually. I once saw uh, Prince Harry in his uniform, and it said Wales on his interesting. Thing, which I yeah. I thought was weird that it would first maybe name it Prince, his middle name of. But he's not even the Prince of Wales, That's, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't get it. Maybe it was his yeah. brother. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe one okay. of our listeners knows the answer
0: to this. uh because it's it's William is the. Duke he's the prince of,
1: or and he's not the prince of wales yet either but their dad is the prince, is the prince, of, prince wales, of wales so maybe that's why it's wales. wales
0: okay yeah last name wales <laughs> i i really don't know I, I don't so know. i think i think i think she's still i think she still goes by Meghan markle yeah. but more frequently the the duchess of windsor is that right is that the royal title i think it's
1: sussex isn't it The duchess oh it is sussex. Of sussex you're right
0: yeah you're absolutely right it is sussex
1: it's cambridge um, uh, uh william and kate are Cambridge, and I think Harry and Meghan are Sussex. Unless- You're
0: absolutely... Yeah, that's that's right. It sounds okay. much more correct to me. Uh, right. We're such Americans, Andrew. Just trying I know, to, man. Trying to, Even though we've lived try, in England, it's like... Trying to parse know? out the Royal Party titles. This I is know. great. Uh, so, the funny thing is, after that quote from Meghan, the profiler, the, the writer goes on to say, of course, she knows she's no Mandela, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but perhaps even telling me this story is a mode of defense because if you are if, because if you are a symbol for all that is good and charitable how can anybody find you objectionable how can anybody hate you right really remarkable
1: i mean I, it's like <laughs> it, i mean it's like it, she might as well have said you know one time this person said you remind me so much of jesus yeah exactly. or something i mean what where do we stop yeah. uh, with the analysis that, that that journalist put on it amazing wild story you know that they're going to have a reality show by the way apparently William and I mean Harry and Megan
0: yeah wow I've heard this I am I am a a, you know pretty typical American I think and that I mostly tune out everything about the royal family so when there was that whole kerfuffle between Mm uh between the Duke and the Duchess and the rest of the royal family I really was pretty tuned out on it but most of the things that I've seen about them do not really commend them uh do, you know do not really reflect well on them uh ever since the departure or so uh the fact that there may be a reality tv show built around their life is completely ridiculous to me pretty much um yeah anyway i have no further comment on that but it is true so now you're down to the uh the california one and the bank of america one
1: okay um i'm gonna say that the third one the bank of america one is true and i'm gonna say somehow that second one about I mean, the second one seems true, but I'm just, it seems sort of too true. So I'm gonna say the second one's false, the third one is true. And you can explain to me how I'm right or wrong.
0: Yeah, there's strategy involved in my choices here, mm-hmm. Andrew, because I, you know, sometimes sometimes you think that the sort of too believable one has to be false and the too unbelievable one has to be true. But it, it actually, in fact, the California, California one is true in this case okay. and the Bank of America one is false. But I have more things to say about each of those. So the, we'll start with the, uh, the California one. So yes, just a couple of weeks ago, I think, California uh, passed a ban that will, that will come into effect in 2035, 2035 on gas vehicles. My understanding is that the ban is not on those vehicles being driven on the roads, but on uh, being sold in the state. The
1: sale of new ones, um, yeah.
0: That is my understanding, yes. And then the heat wave comes. And the California power grid is in bad shape. People, people give Texas a lot of grief over its power grid. You live there. You would know better than I. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a lot of that's warranted. The power grid does need, it's in desperate need of modernization. But the same is, is true in, in California. So when these hot days come on and everyone's running their AC full blast, uh, it really strains the power grid. And California is trying to take steps to limit the effect of that. Uh, and so, one of those is telling people to keep their thermostats above 78 degrees. Another one is don't don't uh, plug in your large appliances if you don't need them. You know, don't, don't have empty re- empty refrigerators running. You know, don't run, I don't know, com- air compressors and whatnot, and don't charge your electric cars. <laughs> but the irony is just amazing, given that you know, just a couple weeks ago, they said, we're not gonna have any more gas cars ever in the state starting in 2035. Also, by the way, don't charge your cars, it's going to take too much energy. And we can't we can't sustain that. So you would think that a proper policy, you know, a a sensible policy would say, let's modernize our electric grid. Let's prioritize that so we can make sure we won't have the energy problems that we have now. And as part of that, let's modernize our, our our automobiles, you know, but that's not what has happened. So
1: it does seem like with regard to cars that there's a certain a certain type of person who seems to think that that electricity is a kind of like magic mana from heaven or something like that, if it's going into a car. You know, like get an electric car, or save energy. Well, I mean right. the energy comes from somewhere. I mean, yeah. and in fact, if everybody's plugging in these electric cars, that seems like it's gonna be right. a pretty big drain on There's the a lot of coal
0: being burned to bring the electricity to your Tesla. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a a guy that I really like named Michael Schellenberger who wrote a book called Apocalypse Never. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he described himself as, you know, kind of a dad in the wool progressive. And in fact, an environmentalist, he's been an environmental activist for decades. Uh, But his book Apocalypse Never is really good because he says, basically, if we're going to fix the climate, we need to have serious, honest conversations with each other about what is apocalyptic and what is not apocalyptic. And here's the science on how the earth can in fact heal itself when, you know, we have done damage through deforestation or plastic in the ocean or whatever the case is. And here are the real problems that we face. And here's how nuclear energy is a huge part has to be a huge part of the energy answer for us and how, uh, you know, the sort of radical, uh, the radical elements of environmentalists have made nuclear energy advances more, much more or less impossible across the world in the last 30 years. Um, and he's talked about uh, this specific issue in California and said, has said that the future, if there is one, a, a future for clean cars, it's in hydrogen fuel cell cars, which are not here yet, uh, but hopefully it will be. And that's where we should be investing because electric cars are actually not that efficient compared to, you know, just burning gasoline in your, in your engine. So right, I, I'm not a car guy. I can't, I can't independently verify that information, but, uh, He's not the first person I've heard say that either. I think the answer is probably something, you know, the, the Teslas of the world are a bridging solution. So to say that that's the future of uh, automobiles is probably not thinking, not thinking creatively enough.
1: Yeah. I wonder about that. I, I, I almost, I wonder if we're kind of in like the laser disc phase of cars, you know, like when you know, the, the LPs were replaced with laser discs and it seemed like, oh, this is the way it's going to go. And then all of a sudden it was like, nah, actually this isn't going to be the best way to deliver music at home. And then they disappeared and the CD replaced them. So, yeah. Uh, Or even the CD,
0: because the CD was clearly an interim solution as well. I mean, who has a CD now, right? Everything's just digital. Um, Well, I still have a
1: lot of CDs actually.
0: (laughs) I mean, I, I used to, I think my CD, well, maybe I still do, but yeah, I mean, I certainly had a CD collection once upon a time, but my kids, well, that's actually the bad example. We get CDs from the library, and so mm-hmm. my kids listen to them a lot. But most people I know who are our age do not do CDs. They just do, you know, iTunes or more, more commonly- It's true, I do it CDs. too, and
1: I kind of don't want to. I really yeah. love the ritual of like actually having an object and putting it on yeah. and looking at the liner notes and all of that.
0: You know, but- I've thought of doing that. Um, we have a couple of CD players that my kids use, but uh, if I were gonna go full on, you know i want the ritual of putting it in i think i'd just go record player and just buy. well records, i do that too you know? i do that too yeah.
1: but actually records are actually very expensive if you buy yeah, new ones and so they're yes. kind of a treat to buy but the, one but the
0: sound of a record player is so oh, it's the best i mean the I music is
1: on the object it's yeah. really just an incredible yeah. thing i'm a big yeah. fan
0: totally agree it's not ones and zeros it is actually literally physically encoded into the mm-hmm. yeah that's cool um all right. The third one is false, but there's a twist here. Um, I like to do this with some of the false ones. I like to sometimes you know point out where there is misinformation. So in this case, this is an article from NBC News. The as far as I can tell from Twitter screenshots that I see, the initial version of this article had this headline: "Bank of America announces zero down payment, zero closing cost mortgages for Black and Hispanic first-time homebuyers." Um, very. Explicitly and well, implying very heavily that this would be for uh, people of color only. Right the the real headline, the headline was later changed to this: Bank of America announces zero down payment, zero closing cost mortgages for first time homebuyers in Black and Hispanic communities nationwide. So this is not uh, this this is clearly this is targeting um, communities where um, Black and Hispanic people live in majority Black and Hispanic communities. But this is not a program that is only open to people of a certain race. That would certainly run afoul of um of civil rights law. Right. So they can't do that, which is a, a good thing. But I think this is also potentially a bad thing. I mean, it's it's hard. I'm not a mortgage specialist, and I haven't seen the numbers to 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 um, be able to say if these are actually subprime mortgages. But we know where subprime mortgages get us, and that's the 2008 subprime crisis. So um, the best thing the best thing for people is to not charge them exorbitant interest. Uh, the there's nothing wrong with a mortgage uh, as long as it is reasonable and it is not you know it's not based on usury, which is charging excessively high interest. Right. But the fact of the matter is that the entire mortgage industry is built around excessively high interest, so that right. when you buy a two hundred thousand dollar home over the course of that loan, you'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars simply in interest, which is just absolutely absurd. Right. So the there there are two problems I have with this. One. You're doing a disservice to a home buyer when you offer them a mortgage on terms that they very likely will not be able to meet, right? If you're offering them uh, a uh, like this, you know, a, a zero down payment term that then leaves them with a much higher principal uh, over the life of the loan and obviously much, much higher interest over the life of the loan. That's bad and actually disadvantages them. Um and disadvantages them, disadvantages them in a way that perhaps they won't understand. Mortgage mortgage math is complex. I don't even fully understand it. Right? Like I, I understand the basics that there's a lifetime of the mortgage. I understand there's a principal you pay down your interest over time. There's amortization and stuff. I understand the basics, but but mortgage math is complex, and um, it's it's quite easy for a you know predatory loan officer to take advantage of someone with some eye popping numbers that you can get, you know, through discounted rates, uh, your first year or whatever. And then it pops up or you like an adjustable rate mortgage, for example, I mean, very simple to take advantage of people with this. So that's one possibility here. Um, and the second is simply that this program—I mean, I think this, the cynical view of this program, which I tend to take, is that this is really designed to just bring more and more people into the Bank of America mortgage ecosystem, so right. that they can be taken advantage of. Because the mortgage system in America is pretty predatory already. Without it, without you know your individual loan officer being malicious, the entire system, the edifice, is built on usury for sure uh, and is, is pretty predatory, um, in general. So this is overall a bad thing. Although Bank of America obviously is treating this like, you know, they're, they're patting themselves on the back that they're anti-racist and all of this because they're, you know, wrapping more and more, um, people in black and Hispanic communities into their, uh, exorbitant, uh, mortgage system. So that is my problem with it.
1: Yeah. I think I share your concerns. I am, I know even less than you do. I've had two mortgages in my life and it's all kind of witchcraft to me. So I, uh, yeah that's yeah that's interesting
0: well that is the conclusion of the misinformation segment uh andrew that is it you uh you almost got it you I just you, you 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 thought a little bit too hard on this one it was the obvious answer was in front of you
1: it's tough i'm gonna um, get in your brain eventually zach i always tell this with my kids <laughs> one, one of these like, days. i tell them you know how to succeed in school i was like i always did well in school because like i could quickly figure out what what the teachers wanted, you know, yeah. you just get in their brain and then you succeed. I'm like, I'm gonna I'm That's get exactly that. right. I'm gonna get in yep. your brain, Zach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to our close read today? Let's do it. All right. So this one is uh, in Tablet Magazine. Um, I found it, and uh, Andrew, as you know, we were texting last night about this. It's called "The Great Debasement" by Alice Griven, and I started to read it last night. So I, I sort of read the lead, and uh, it was recommended to me in a newsletter that I get by Connor Friedersdorf um, called The Best of Journalism. And I was like, this is this looks great. This looks like it's up. It's up our alley. It's a lot of the things we talk about. Uh, this is this is not about the death of art, but this is about the debasement of art, meaning uh, sort of the, the exploitation of art or the, the reduction of art. And I thought this is going to be great. And there are things about the article that are really good. I think the article really hits its stride in the second half, Andrew. Mm-hmm. But really through the first half, I was like, man, this this must have been this must have been a lot longer in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then some copy editor hacked it down because it just it just reads really awkwardly through the first Mm -hmm. third to half of the piece, I thought, and was kind of tough to get through. I don't know if you had the same the same Mm -hmm. uh, reaction I did.
1: I did. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about about this article. I thought parts of it were very were very good. The 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 issue with the beginning, I think I'll just put this on the table and then maybe circle back and say some other kind of foundational things about what. Uh, Alice Gribben is saying in the article, but I agree that it did feel like there were things that were sort of hinted at, but then not developed. And then something else was moved on to suggesting that maybe it was longer and there were kind of more pieces. And one of the biggest pieces that I think was teased out, but wasn't developed in full was the idea of kind of what's going on with the art market. Did that, did that strike you as odd? Like it it sort of teased out, like the art market is just this sort of, you know, wild out of control um kind of like kind of world yeah. unto itself you yes. know which i have read some things about that which are quite good actually i even listened to a, a podcast series by of all people alec baldwin who mm. did a multi-part series on his regular podcast which i don't listen to regularly by the way but i just heard about this you, series you alec that baldwin he did. devotee <laughs> Well, Every week, well, new Alec Baldwin I,
0: episode. You know,
1: I don't know how many people are are gonna gonna um get me when I have to be honest about this, but I certainly do like Alec Baldwin as an actor in many in many
0: ways. But he's do you he's really? A, wow, I've I've never been an Alec Baldwin fan. That's I do.
1: I think that he, his comedic timing, especially on things like Thirty Rock, is just just genius. I I really That's, think he's great but uh, yeah I, odd guy based on what yeah. i've seen i
0: think 30 rocks probably his best work and it was all kind of downhill from there but i'm I'm open to have my mind change. he's
1: been in a bunch of great movies he's great in beetlejuice he was really good in the 80s and and in some of the things he was in in the 90s but anyway i digress
0: yeah he's sure an are. odd
1: guy he's he's got a lot of problems but anyway he uh he he did this podcast series about art mainly because he himself was duped um when he tried to to purchase a i mean it was at least a six-figure Piece of art. I think it may wow. have, it may have been close close to seven figures, and so he ended up doing this whole podcast series about kind of deception and forgery, but also just kind of the sheer amount of money and just kind of the insanity of the of the kind of the value of art itself. It's really strange. You may have heard. I don't know, Zach. I've heard on a few podcasts that I listen to um, advertisements for investment schemes where you can like buy into pieces of art which yep. is an interesting an interesting thing. I don't know much more about it than just that I've heard that. But obviously, it is a it is a wild market, the art
0: market, right? So, yeah, I've the, what I've heard about the art market is that uh so there is that thing I've had advertisements for those like fractional share right. services where you can buy a piece of not a, not a physical piece but a a share of a piece of art. Uh but the other thing is that I've heard about um I've heard the these uh these Middle Eastern oil oligarchs Uh, use art as a means of basically diversifying their personal portfolio. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the world's most valuable from a monetary standpoint art is owned by, for example, Saudi, you know, Saudi princes and um, oil shakes, who then just, they just go to these private auctions or send their people there and bid on it and buy, you know, six and seven and eight and nine uh, figures worth of art. And then collected in their basement. So a lot of the world's art is not on display, in museums, and everywhere, everywhere it should be, probably, but rather in some Saudi Sheikh's <laughs> basement. Well, and this this Alec Baldwin thing that I listened
1: to implied that there is a fairly good chance that some of those pieces are not even real. Um, I mean, i've heard which, that as well. Yes, which is really a, an odd thing, and I think that that then ties together, like eventually, where the author is going with just kind of thinking of these pieces of art as on the one hand, these valuable commodities, like these museums have these things. So it's like, they're not just going to put them away and say, you shouldn't look at them. Um, But they're full of all this like so-called problematic stuff, right? That then requires a kind of like um, explainer all the time, right? Right. And then, you know, so then to set up how we, how we arrive there, the, the author, the author's opening line is artworks are not to be experienced, but to be understood. And then kind of lays out the idea that we're in this like utilitarian moment, which I think is very, very true. We're in this utilitarian moment, even with regards to the finest things, mm-hmm. um, which is a really odd place to be, to be sure. Now, you know, maybe you have well, some thoughts about our, that. Well,
0: just reference our, refer- just real quick, reference our earlier conversation about right users, you know, the the, uh, utility, right, refers to the use of something. So a user thinking of one of your customers as a user is a very utilitarian way of looking at your customer, even. Absolutely. Yeah, where our whole world is built around utility right now.
1: Absolutely. And I want to get into the, this utilitarian thing with particularly with regards to this, like, understanding part, I think that there's something and it actually ties to the to the conversation that we had about higher education, I think, to some degree. But I do want to flag one thing at the outset, which is I think that the the, the author's statement here, artworks are not to be experienced but to be understood, is not entirely correct as an assessment of the way that we think about art nowadays. Because mm-hmm. I think equally true is the idea that art is only to be experienced and not understood. And one of the ways I think this is true, but I think it still plays into this same idea of like the commodification of art and to some degree, the utilitarian nature of art, but kind of from a different perspective. Here's the example that I'm thinking of. Um, There are these exhibitions now of the Van Gogh experience or the Mm -hmm. Monet experience, right? So it's like they're offering consumers... Again, they're not looking at the real paintings, which is a a topic that I want to explore here. I think that's a really interesting point, right? They're not (laughs) looking at the real paintings, but they're invited into this experience, which is actually like deliberately billed to them as, hey, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know what's going on here. These are really cool things to just kind of like get into them. You know, like pretend you're, you're at Giverny, like standing on the water lilies or like you're looking at the church at Auvers or whatever it may be, right? So like I guess I just would – I would have wanted that kind of included along with this point that she's making about this yeah. like very highbrow aspect of, of the art world now being so utilitarian. But there's also this like popular flavor of it, which is utilitarian in one respect, but it is very much about experience, not understanding. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Uh, with that. No, I
0: think that's, I I agree with that. Uh, y- you have a better, uh, a, a better understanding of these experiential exhibits. I have not attended one of them. I'm not super familiar with them. Uh, as you've described it, it sounds rather horrible. I don't know why you would attend an experiential visit about an artist that didn't actually incorporate the artist's work.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool if you think of it the right way. If you think like, okay, Van Gogh is a really incredible artist. Let's go see this, and then, like let's make a plan to go to the Museum of Modern Art or to yeah. the the uh say Museum in Paris or something, and like really right,
0: right. really
1: experience the painting, yeah, right?
0: and that makes sense the to me, I think that that line was sort of strange as well because I agree with you it it is not always about understanding there's all there also is this emphasis on experience to me, the line is not so much about experience versus understanding but rather about um. This actually goes back to our conversation last week about epistemic humility, even in the face of great literature. You know, what can we learn from this literature? So it's to me, the line is about um, should, should is artwork there for for us to co-opt or is artwork there for our instruction? Um, and I think that is that is really a better dividing line that the that the author is talking about here, because she goes on to describe at great length. This exhibit that I think was in I think it was in London, right?
1: Yeah, I think it was at the Tate Britain.
0: Um. And, oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Uh, by a uh, painter and printmaker, William Hogarth, and she describes many of these pieces, but more more uh cogently she describes the exhibit itself and the exhibit's descriptions of these pieces. And almost all of the descriptions were taken from academics, modern academics in either literature or art. In some cases, I think history, all of which had some sort of specialty in something very postmodern, you know, like, I don't know, sex and gender studies or um, anti-colonialism or whatever. And, and it, it featured these comments on the painting and every single comment without fail that she highlights here, at least, is sort of reading a meaning into the painting that is in all probability very different from the meaning that the painter of the piece had in mind when he painted it. Yeah. And so there is this very intentional effort to co-opt rather than um to sort of to sort of learn from. And that I think is is a is a more appropriate dividing line um uh, than the sort of experience understood thing.
1: Right. And and I think they would they would say, well, we're not trying to say um uh, we're not trying to say what the painting means maybe, but what we are trying to say is like, well, well they are trying to say what the painting means, but the meaning that they're finding in it is something that um that is completely, yeah, I don't know. You've already said it, but maybe I'll, I'll just use an example, right? Like, so if there's a chair in a painting from the 18th century, <laughs> that, right? The that meaning example of the chair, yeah. right, is like the, the presence of the chair in the painting ought to signal to us something about the transatlantic slave trade, about colonialism, about something like that. Like, yeah, we're supposed I, I to say like, where did place? that chair come from, right? Yeah, please do.
0: Yeah. So, um. This is based on uh, this is a piece in the exhibit called I think an, an artist at work by William Hogarth and I'm looking at the the painting right now it's it's literally a man sitting on a, a Chippendale style uh, chair with a palette of paints in his hand and a paintbrush and he's looking at a canvas and he's clearly he's working on the canvas uh, on just a you know typical sort of tri stand easel uh, and. So she describes, this, and the author of this piece says, in a self-portrait of the artist at work, the chair in which Hogarth sits. "Quote," quoting from the the exhibit itself, "literally supports him and exemplifies his view on beauty." The chair is made from timbers shipped from the colonies via routes which also shipped enslaved people. Could the chair also stand in for all those unnamed black and brown people enabling the society that supports his vigorous creativity? <laughs> and you look at the you look at the art. It's he's it's a chair. Right. It's a. It's, First of yeah. all, is that
1: even true? I mean, it could it could have been made out of the oak tree in his backyard. We don't even know exactly. That, right? I know,
0: I, I it's completely unprovable. I, I mean, I don't know. Ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it it is. And you know, there's this line here about how you know the whole attitude then towards it is. Uh, there's this quote here: "A painting is a pictorial facsimile of its period's ruling ideology." Um, mm-hmm. Right. So it. it you know, even a portrait, right? Even a portrait is not what interests us. Is not the person, right, or some some kind of like humanity that sort of that the artist is able to by his skill or her skill, like sort of uh, evoke that connects us to sort of something about what it means to be alive. Rather, the portrait is a type, right? So the portrait then all it does is signal to us certain things about class, race, gender inequality like whatever it may be right rather than just the experience of a human being looking at the rendering of another human being made by another human being in another era and letting it somehow speak to us to mean something to us right
0: yeah i totally uh i totally agree one of the one of the problems with this piece i think is that the author seems to be saying and she says this early on that artwork should be experienced and then that experience is an entirely subjective one. At least that's how I read her. Um, so rather than sort of having this co-opting attitude where you look at a piece and says, what is this? And you say, what is this exposed? She says, exposing, or what is this revealing? Um, you know, what can I deconstruct given this painting that's in front of me? Rather than doing that, you need to just sort of sit from a position of humility and experience the painting. And I think, that, I think that's true, but I don't think that that, that, that experience is entirely subjective. I do actually think that, that paintings should reveal things. In fact, the, the feedback from Justin said this, right? Art is supposed to reveal reality. Um, and so to me, the problem is not actually that these, these scholars are reading the wrong thing into these, or it's, it's, not that they're, it's not that they're reading into these paintings and sort of trying to draw out some truth from them. The problem is that the thing that they're drawing out is just not true, right? And so, as an example, to the to point about the portrait, the um, there, was, there was one, I think it was actually a bust. She did talk about a portrait, but the example I'm thinking of is about a bust. And this bust, I'm trying to find the exact, uh, the exact painting here, or the exact bust. Okay, the, so this is a bust by Jean-Baptiste Carpeau. And the bust is called Why Born Enslaved? And it is a slave woman. Uh, and the, let me find the description of it. Um, Okay, so this, this is this is the author of the piece writing. Fictions of Emancipation, Carpo Recast, was mounted, that's the name of the exhibit, was mounted at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City this March and is set to run for a year. It centers around a single sculpture within the museum's permanent collection. And that's the that's what I described. A life-size marble bust of a bound semi-nude enslaved woman modeled in 1868. It is one of the most well-known works of 19th century abolitionist art. So it turns out this Carpo, who made it is an abolitionist. And this is a This is a powerful abolitionist piece of art because it's showing this woman in her in her full humanness, in her full femininity, fully a human, just like you and I are human beings, Andrew. And so this is this has been known as a very um, strong uh, and powerful piece of abolitionist art. But the commentary on here says. While the subject's resisting pose, defiant expression, and accompanying inscription have long been interpreted as as conveying a powerful anti-slavery message, the bust also visualizes long-standing European fantasies about the possession of and domination over Black people's bodies.
1: Right. What again? I mean, what What? a wild, what a wild assumption, right? I mean, the the artist's stated stated purpose is to create something beautiful, um, which is a reflection of his desire to see. Injustice come to an end, right? And right. and then we and then in the future, it's read back into his intentions that well, he said that, but actually, he was just probably fantasizing about. He was like at, a
0: crazy, yeah, an erotically disturbed racist, yeah. basically, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's very odd, and it goes back to what you were saying before about you know, kind of the objective subjective thing, right? Of course, yeah. like what we're we're always interested in the truth, right? So, of course, we're interested in the way in which art. I mean, certainly the author's intentions matter and, or the artist's intentions matter to some degree. Like what it is, it is important to ask, what were they trying to do? What, what were they mm-hmm. trying to say? Now, at the same time, the thing about art is it's precisely because we we don't, we're not the Borg. We don't all share the same brain. We don't all have the same feelings, right? That art affects us in kind of our individuality, but you know, I mean, that's that's just the nature of being alive. I mean, some things make us feel a certain way, make us think certain things. One of the things I thought the article did pretty well was was mentioning in a couple of places, just the way that exposure to the same piece of art or different pieces of art over time can have different effects, you know? I mean, it, you can come into kind of a, a deeper appreciation of some truth by engaging with it mm-hmm. more. Or maybe you see it and you kind of think, mm, yeah, there was a time when I understood something really true and beautiful and good. But this, this doesn't do it for me anymore. I'm just not really interested in this, right? And that's the wonderful yeah. thing about art. Um, it, you know, I don't know if we're ready to jump to more or less the conclusion. But, you know, I just, I, I just thought ultimately it was, a, it, was an, it was a fairly interesting article that had one very good piece of advice at the end of it. Namely, yeah, don't... Yeah, let's go to that don't look at the don't look at what the placards say when you go look at paintings in a museum I mean that's just like that's just one easy thing you can do to make your experience of art much more enjoyable
0: right I think the same goes for English you know to to uh, refer back to our previous conversation last week about William the Resilus and his struggles in the academy um every every uh scholar who's anybody these days, and she talks about this in the early part of this piece, they need to have certain things on their resume and they need to talk about certain things and they need to talk about, um, you know, the right things more, more particularly. Uh, and so everyone ends up saying the same thing and it's just, you know, how can I look at this piece of art and read in the most deconstructionist, uh, you know, Foucaultian, Marxist, anti-racist, um, postmodern interpretation that I possibly can. And that, that will be, then, then I will have achieved originality. Yeah. Uh, Which is super obnoxious
1: yeah and there's a point i think you're 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 hitting on a point that is another thing that i think the article probably maybe did in an earlier draft flesh out more but alluded to in ways that piqued my interest namely the the uh relationship between um this this uh sort of you know misfortune or you know this sort of debasement or whatever in the art world and Kind of the collapse of the humanities in academia, you know, like I mean, just literally, like the lack of jobs. Like I mean, we have yep. these people with PhDs walking around, and then you have this like art world that is so flush with cash. So you have this like interesting, interesting <laughs> convergence, point. right? It's like you have like yeah. museums who need people with degree letters after their name to, you know, to describe what people are seeing, and you know, the, these are people who come out of the world who who say, who, who have sort of a message you know i listen to this guy called the critical drinker he's a he's a film reviewer and a really wild guy in scotland but he talks about the message all the time in modern media you know it's like you're just watching something and you know just going along and then all of a sudden it's like whoa where did that like total total non sequitur about you know this and that come from and this seems to be kind of what's happening in the art world too it's like the message above all right
0: right yeah it makes me wonder a hundred years hence what would be the interpretation of the Hogarth paintings. It would probably be something slightly different, you know um yeah. yeah, yeah, because it is it's it's it is the least interesting thing in the world, I think, to interpret a piece of art strictly on the terms strictly on your own terms, and that's what all these people end up doing so i mean I think the, I think your advice is good. don't listen to the experts again, my my problem with the piece is that I don't think that art is strictly supposed to be experienced. I think it is supposed to reveal. I think it is supposed to stir something in our souls. Uh, the problem with the art, the, the examples she gives is just that these people are not letting it stir their souls in the right way. It's like they're, it's like they're resisting, you know, and they have to impose their own terms on it.
1: Right. On, on and, in fact, And in fact, it's sort of implying that consumers of high of high art and high culture actually, uh, They just want the right answer like they they actually kind of don't want to experience it um totally they sort of want to know how they should think about it which is you know i i certainly have encountered that with people's reactions to other things too
0: films Mm -hmm. you know politics whatever it may be right yep yep absolutely right any further thoughts on this our close read for the day i think that's all i've got great cool we are now moving on to the recommendation section I will say just briefly, you know, I uh, loved getting the, the feedback from Justin. Justin, thanks again for writing to Andrew with your thoughts. We would love to hear from anybody else who has thoughts on this. You know, what's your philosophy, Art, for example? What would we miss in the great debasement? What would you add to the conversation? we would love to, uh, to read that on next week's show. So definitely send us a note if you can. Without further ado, though, Andrew, what's your recommendation for this week?
1: All right. My recommendation for this week is this book by Joseph Ratzinger, which is called A Turning Point for Europe. I don't know if you've encountered this book.
0: I have, I've not read it, but I'm familiar with it, yeah.
1: Yeah, I had never read it, and I'm working on one, one of my projects, my book projects that I'm working on is about European film, kind of modern European film, 1990 to 2020, and I'm very interested in the way that philosophical and theological themes are explored in kind of this new European context after the Cold War, and then into kind of, you know, post nine eleven, and then into Mm -hmm. kind of all kinds of stuff that's been going on in Europe for the last 10 years and and, and where we are now. Obviously, it's a whole new thing with the invasion of Russia and Ukraine and stuff like that. I'm not really getting into that in my project. But I wanted to go back and look at what um, John Paul II and then also what Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict had to say just about Europe itself during this incredibly tumultuous transition time. And this book, A Turning Point for Europe, came out in German in 1991, it was translated into English, I think a, a couple of years after that. But it is a really fascinating book. And I think still resonates, even though Europe has changed a lot since this book came out.
0: I've heard it's quite prescient.
1: It is very prescient, I mean, in a lot of different ways. I mean, and one of them is, is, is in a way that I think really has to be reckoned with, which is what to make of, what to make of Christianity in a continent mm-hmm. that is inherently Christian. I mean, Europe, I mean, you know, you can break it apart, you can put it back into tribes, you can, you can do something else with that massive land if you want to. But calling it Europe is founded on the identity of, of Christianity. First Catholicism yeah. and then obviously in a more fractured way after the Reformation. But um, Ratzinger really explores that. Profoundly in this in this little book and he gets into other things too that that as you say are prescient I mean, he, he's he thinks about terrorism and drugs. He thinks about technology He thinks about things that are going to be like real issues that he thinks like this new Europe is going to have to reckon with and and at the end of the day, you know He really says most of these problems are the result of a kind of longing for Reality a lo- It's a kind of it's almost a kind of mystical um the, the, the question is sort of more spiritual and mystical than it is kind of economic and practical yeah. and, and geopolitical yeah. and stuff like that. Right. So highly recommend this book. I've used it for my work and I really i have read every page of it with a pencil and I think it is just terrific.
0: That's great. I love that. Mine is uh, certainly less intellectual than that, but, uh, but enjoyable. Um, this is a piece from 2013, I think. Uh, some of our listeners may have heard of Grantland. It was, uh, it was a long-form site that was attached to ESPN. It was not exclusively about sports, uh, and it ended up getting shuttered, and then its founder, Bill Simmons, eventually started The Ringer, uh, independent of ESPN. But this is one of Grantland's greatest pieces ever, I think, uh, by a guy named Brian Phillips, and it's called Out in the Great Alone. And it is a very, very, very long, I mean, small book-length um, profile of the Iditarod the uh the sled dog race that happens every year in Alaska. Uh so you know we're you know, we're in we just finished August, we're in September, Labor Day weekends right around the corner. The weather will turn cooler eventually, Andrew, and uh maybe some people can can enjoy thinking of cooler days ahead uh while they read about the Iditarod in this uh in this fantastic fantastic work. So bit of a non sequitur, but, uh, I had forgotten to come up with a recommendation for this week. And I was like, I'll have to look at, look at some of my favorite long form pieces done over the years. And this is a great one. So I have not read would, that would recommend that maybe yeah. I'll
1: uh, print it out and take it on the airplane with me when I go across. The yeah, you should ocean. for sure.
0: I think you'd enjoy it a lot. So that is it for this episode of what a week. Again, if you uh, want to just send us some feedback, please do Zach at credopodcast.com, uh, or Zach and Andrew at credopodcast.com. And we would love to read your feedback on the show. We're going to try to bring you a show next week. It's going to be a little bit tricky with uh, with Andrew's. Actually, I'm traveling as well next weekend. So we both have travel. We're going to try to get a, an episode out next week. So uh, you can expect that. And our apologies in advance if it doesn't work out. But um, thanks again for listening to another episode. And until next time, God bless you.